the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'd like to say hello to our viewers in Scandinavia, and welcome them and everyone else to the latest readout from our Wednesday wake-up newsletter, and then gross them out with sea snot. Yeah, it's pretty bad, and apparently it's spreading in the Sea of Marmara, and of course the usual suspects are trying to gross you out and scare you with the latest campfire story about how, quote, experts blame pollution and climate change, end quote because all effects of climate change are bad, and if possible, disgusting as well as frightening, whereas anything good, like plants feasting on CO2 and growing better, is mere conjecture at best, experts say. Now, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan also said, quote, hopefully we will save our seas from this mucilage calamity, end quote, which is surely a sentence never before uttered, which will please linguists. But can we save our brains from believing that in waters horrendously polluted by, among other things, industries in the former Soviet Union, a fractional increase in temperature has turned the ocean into boogers? In the newsletter, we also look at a story about a distinguished biologist on a mission to save plants from CO2 by making them hide the stuff in their roots. It's scientifically clever, and she somehow got millions of dollars in grants despite us deniers having all the money. But the weird thing is that, although plants evolved in a world with far more atmospheric CO2, to the point that the predominant C3 photosynthesis kind are struggling under current low CO2 conditions, they apparently need help from Dr. Frankenstein finally to see how to get the stuff out of the air and bury it where no other plant will find it again, in some sort of cork-like deposit in their roots. Of course, as Willis Eschenbach observes of a new study, with a suspicious 106 authors, a study claiming that tropical forests are losing their ability to sequester carbon. Climate orthodoxy says that plants may have evolved to love CO2, but now they hate it, at least our kind. And I find that there's a peculiar disconnect here between science and nature, perhaps because these researchers spend far too much of their time inside computer models instead of out in a garden or a forest. Or even in a greenhouse, where the owners pump in CO2 to promote healthy growth. Remember, in the last glaciation, atmospheric CO2 got down to 180 parts per million, which is perilously close to the 150 parts per million where C3 plants perish. And yet now these scientists think we need plants to commit assisted suicide, you know, actively working to sequester CO2 so that they can basically starve in the cold? Yeah, it'll be better than life. And if that doesn't scare you, well, climate change apparently causes zombie fires as well as sea snot. And also, it's going to make the Pine Island Glacier fall into the water, because the ice shelf that used to keep it stuck on Antarctica is thinning, which could result in the seas rising more than two-thirds of an inch per century. So, it's all over, according to the Washington Post. Quote, The Pine Island Glacier was already scary. The 160-mile-long river of ice is known as the weak underbelly of West Antarctica. It contributes more to sea level rise than any other glacier on the continent, and ranks among the fastest-melting glaciers in the world. Pine Island contains roughly 180 trillion tons of ice, enough to cause 1.6 feet of sea level rise, end quote. Well, at least it'll wash away the sea snot, you might say. But how fast is this catastrophe engulfing us? Gah! It's one-sixth of a millimeter per year! Yep, two-thirds of an inch per century. And the worst-case scenario, if Pine Island and the nearby Thwaites Glacier both decide to drop into the Southern Ocean completely, the waters could rise several feet by the year 2400, even though Antarctica isn't getting warmer and hasn't been for decades. You know, you better go back to the sea snot. This one's just not scary. 
And now, if I had a hat, I would pass it to you. Because we depend on your contributions to produce our videos and our newsletter. Please subscribe, share it with your friends, and support our work so we can continue to produce it. Though in a way it is scary that as soon as the G7 leaders flew back home in their private jets from promising to save us all from CO2, they cranked up the coal plants. Along with Xi Jinping, while Vladimir Putin is all in on coal complete with slave labor, and also Arctic oil, and India, Australia, and Africa love coal too. So what's scary here? Well, to us it's that these G7 leaders are obliged to turn to coal because of their own ridiculous opposition to natural gas and nuclear, their inability to see that you have to get energy from somewhere, or that so-called renewables aren't really working very well, and their apparent belief that there's no need to have your deeds relate to your words, which makes it rather hard to have a sensible conversation or even a useful argument, because these progressive policy positions on fracking or nuclear power are, to steal a phrase from Bill Maher, quote, less of a policy position and more of a leg tattoo, end quote. And then you wind up warming your legs with coal while pretending you're phasing it out. And speaking of the G7, a sincere hat tip to noted climate scientist and grade 11 student Greta Thunberg for her tweet about the leaders of the G7 jetting around and indulging in haute cuisine to promote net zero. In her words, quote, G7 spends fantasy amounts on fossil fuels as CO2 emissions are forecast for second biggest annual rise ever. This calls for steak and lobster barbecue celebration while jet planes perform aerobatics in the sky above the G7 resort, end quote. Bullseye. And how did these politicians, for whom image is everything, not realize that this one would look bad, even foolish? I mean, it's not clear that voters have much appetite for actual drastic measures on greenhouse gases. Swiss voters just rejected a carbon tax, and down in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern has been an ardent environmentalist prime minister since 2017, but she's done nothing important to reduce emissions. Whereas a local chapter of the Thunberg-inspired school strike for climate just disbanded because it realized it was a, quote, racist, end quote, and, quote, white-dominated space, end quote. I know the revolution notoriously devours its children, but it's not quite so often that they eat themselves. And it's certainly not likely to inspire trust that, after dissolving because of their appalling personal and social failings, they can save the rest of us from ourselves. There's lots more in the newsletter, as always, from a chilly spring due to weather giving way to a hot, dry spell in the United States caused by climate change, uh, except east of the Rockies, where a prolonged cooler-than-normal spell is just more weather. And part two on last week's remarkable study by climate scientists led by Peng Fei Liu of Harvard, whose look at 250-year-old ice out of the Antarctic cap suggests that fires were not less common in the pre-industrial period as had been supposed, but more so, which means that modelers can't use the alleged increase in aerosols in the 20th century to offset the hypothetical powerful warming impact of greenhouse gases. Oh, and these researchers also found that, yes, the medieval warm period was real. It was medieval, it was a period, and it was warm. We also talk about two studies reported on by CO2Science.org, one of them showing that more carbon dioxide and more warmth helps wheat grow well, including improving nitrogen uptake, and the other one critiquing those infamous computer models for, in this case, their inability to deal properly even with known past data on wind extremes. So, please continue to support us, subscribe, and share our work. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and sorry about the sea snot. It wasn't us.